Let's turn, if you would, and if you have a Bible and you would like to, it be Psalm 80. But I want to share with you as you, um, as you take a moment to do that, I was planning, to, what should I speak on? And I thought, as I was going through my own quiet times, my own devotional life, I've been reading the Psalms, especially the Psalms between 73 and 83, which are the Psalms that are um, specifically um, written they say by Asaph, or it says of Asaph, which is usually just kind of collection, I think, of psalms dedicated to him. You know how you do that? Sometimes you dedicate a book to someone posthumously or something along that line. I think that's what these psalms are. Someone, Asaph, in the time of David, who now um, people have written psalms and they collected them. This is my understanding. Old Testament scholars are all over the place on that. Um, but as I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about this particular psalm, I was thinking... The cry of the heart of this psalmist is, is basically, oh, for the good old days. And on the front page of USA Today, at Thursday, the title says, and some of you may have seen it, A Year Before Voting, A Nation of Discontent. And it, it reads, Call Us the Unhappy States of America. Anybody see that little article? I remember it. 72% of those surveyed in the USA Today, Gallup poll taken October 12th through 14th say they are dissatisfied with how things are going. There isn't a sense, as I read on, a national consensus, a heart cry for the good old days. When the Dow was steadily climbing, interest rates were falling, the housing economy was strong, oil prices were below $80 a barrel. The good old days when we were more concerned about the points read between the Vikings and Dallas than about the Patriots and Colts, right? When they were winning 10 games or more with Bud Grant, Purple Peel, People Eaters, Eller, Larson, Page, Marshall, Tarkenton. The good old days. There's kind of a heart cry in many throughout our nation, 72%, for those days when it was better. And it may resonate with you somewhat. Some of those days when things were brighter, maybe in your own life. It may be a personal call in your own heart, a cry in your own heart. Some of you are living with things that you want revived, possibly a marriage. It may be that you have a relationship with a child or a sibling or a parent a business that you're asking God to revive, your finances that you're asking God to restore. The cry of your heart might be for a friendship that, that was once close that is now seems to be estranged and, and there seems to be difficulty. Maybe it's a ministry you're involved in. And you're saying, God, would you revive it? Would you restore it? Maybe a relationship with God. You know, things aren't right with God or you feel distance and you're, been kind of through this process and you're starting to say, God, restore. Well, this is the cry of the psalmist's heart. He says, in a sense, restore us, God, to those good old days. In a collection of these psalms and put under the name, I think, of Asaph and not really sure who all the writers were, but Psalm 80 is written like a contemporary song. In fact, if you read through it, a lot of the scholars will say they're not sure exactly how this song is to be um, how it goes, but it's almost like a contemporary song, like a contemporary worship chorus. It, it, it has a verse and a chorus, a verse and a chorus, 
and then a verse bridge in a course is kind of how it, it flows. And you'll see that if you'll note in this psalm, verse 3, verse 7, and then verse 19, there are three refrains, three basic courses that are the cry of the heart of the psalmist that might be similar to what your own heart is crying in some ways where the psalmist cries out and says, Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us. And send smile on us again that we may be saved. And then restore us, O God. And this time he adds the word almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Restore us. And then he adds one more name. O Lord, God almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Bring back the good old days. In essence, it's a cry for revival and In fact, verse 18, at one point he says, Revive us and we will call on your name again. Your people sense your distance. We need you. What I want to do is just kind of do a quick review of the psalm and kind of walk you through it. Then I want to just share with you three observations and to prepare our hearts to take communion this morning. And so I want us to kind of stroll through the psalm and look at a few of the verses and what I consider to be some of the ideas that are a little more noticeable in it. The writer begins by recalling the better days, what I call the, the glory days of Israel. And so verses 1 and 2, he begins, similar to what this uh, offertory trumpet uh, solo was, this shepherd, you know, lead us. And he begins, he says, Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. The word shepherd here is, is, you may think of it in Psalm 23, but it's the only time it's used of God in this way. And it's kind of an interesting thing where he would say in the psalm, hear us, O shepherd of Israel, that phrase, shepherd of Israel. Although we know all throughout the Bible, you see these pictures of God as a shepherd who is guiding and leading his people like a flock. And the picture you have is, as he looks at this, as he says, here is O shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock. The idea that you were, the picture is of, of God coming to the people of Israel who are in bondage in Egypt. And this shepherd opens the door and, and you get this, this picture of this people like a flock of sheep being guided all throughout the wilderness and this shepherd caring for them, leading them to a place where there's a rock where they can drink and leading to a place where there's manna they can eat and this continual path of this flock till he finally brings it to its promised land of pasture those were the good old days and you kind of go man they weren't really truly thinking correctly because they were complaining the whole time but what was good about it the fact it was good is because God was intimately involved in their life, leading and guiding them and, and moving them and caring for them and creating places for them to stay and to be cared for and protected where he would bring them eventually to the place that he had promised to them. And they're basically saying, God, would you come to us like that again? You who sit enthroned by cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. It's this idea of God who is on this tabernacle and they're carrying him along. And he's, he's in front and behind them, they believe, were these three tribes that are mentioned here. Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. This camp, in fact, one of the commentators says, perhaps these three tribes are named because they were the tribes which formed the squadron of the camp of Israel that in their march through the wilderness fouled next to the tabernacle. 
so that before them the ark of God's strength rose, shine forth to scatter the enemies. When they go off to war, they would be in that alignment, and they would see the, the work and the power of God who would stir up his might or shine forth as with the idea to scatter the enemies. These tribes were also the ones that were in the heart of Israel when they actually came into the land of Israel. In the very heart of it, you have Jerusalem. And then right up here in the center part of it, the, the most crucial part for protecting the country were these three tribes. All of them descended, in a sense, from Rachel, Joseph and the two sons, Ephraim and Essa and Benjamin. And in a sense, these were the heart of Israel, in the heart of the land. And they're saying, God, we're in a position where we're asking for you. To act on our behalf. And then he goes to verse 3. Restore us, O God. Do this again. Intervene would be another way to say. Intervene on our behalf. Hear us. Do again what you once did. As you let us, provided for us, protected us, and shine through us. Do it again. Stanza 2, then verses 4 through 6. He continues. O Lord God Almighty. How long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? In a sense, in this passage, at this point, he's saying God's ticked. He's angry with them. He doesn't seem to be paying attention to their prayers. They sense his alienation. The luster of his presence is gone. And he's saying, God, are you continue to be angry with us? And he makes the next statement. You have fed them with the bread of tears. Bread of tears is in a sense, just as he fed them with manna, he's now saying bread of tears. In the same way, now our life, we're being fed in a sense, day in and day out with sorrow. The staple, the bread of our life, is a sense of sorrow. Tears. And you've made them drink tears by the bowlful. It's interesting here because he says you made them or fed them. And if you go on to the next verse, it says, You made us a source of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. The Lord in some way has allowed all of Israel to experience this, but he at this, this time is writing about them and us. And I think what he's referring to is at a time, and this is when I believe this was written, it was at a time when the nation of Israel had begun through its civil war and they were divided. There was a southern part of Judah and their northern part of Israel. And these three tribes made up primarily that northern part of Israel. And at that time they had been weakened. They had either had the Assyrians march through and destroyed them, or at some point they were so weak that those who were in the south were beginning to cry out in their heart for God to protect them because they saw, in a sense, the shoulder of their older you know, brother or sibling. This divided tribe is now weakened. So who will protect them? So they begin to cry out. Does that make sense? So you have these people at this time worried about their own situation. The southern tribe, the northern tribe has been weakened. And they have been disobedient to God. They have stubbornly refused to allow them, God, to work in their behalf. And God has allowed for them to go their own way to their own sense of destruction. And is allowing the enemy to come in. And in that, in that process, allowing that to happen to get their attention. And there's this cry at this time in the southern tribe. They're beginning to cry out and say, God, would you unite us again? Would you do what you once did? Because as you continue on, you see, he, he cries out after the enemies mock us. We're a source of contention. People don't look at us like they once did. And he now goes into this next verse where he starts to call out about the good old days again. He says in stanza three, 
You brought us out like a vine, a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted. You cleared the ground for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, its mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out the bows to the sea, which was the Mediterranean. It shoots as far as the river Euphrates. This was what they were promised at some time, that when they were planted in the promised land, they would eventually grow to such an extent that they would, they would spread out from sea to the farthest river north. And Israel would become this great nation that all these other larger nations around them would would stand back and cower as they would see the work of God and the presence and the glory of God not being a sense of contempt. They would be the source of great glory. And people would look at this nation called Israel. And they're beginning in this in this is he's saying this and he's he's repeating. He said, you took us, you planted us. Like those days in Moses when you guided us. Now, like the days of David, when we became great and glorious, would you come, God, and do this again? Would you bring back the good old days? Like the United States of America, they wanted the United Tribes of Israel to become what it once was, more than they ever dreamed of. Think about it when the states of this country came together and they, in that time of revolution, had no idea it would become what it has become today. Can you imagine that? Well, that's really what was going on is he looks back and he looks back at this little tribe, these, ten, these 12 tribes, united tribes of Israel come into this land. They're, they're actually planted by the hand of God. God blesses them to such an extent that they spread out, as he says, covered the mountains, the mighty cedars are often allusions to other large nations and powerful nations. And it sent out its shoots everywhere. Those were the glory days. But then something happened. And here you move to the bridge. He skips the chorus. You know, he doesn't go verse, chorus, verse, chorus, back into that chorus. But he goes actually verse back into a bridge. And the bridge is this. He cries out to God, why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? And boars from the forest ravage and creatures of the field feed on it. And then he makes this little chorus, almost gets into it again, but he says, Return to us, O Lord God Almighty. Would you look down from heaven again and see? Would you watch over this vine, the root of your right hand that has planted, the sun or branch you have raised up for yourself, which is an allusion even to the coming of the Messiah, hoping for one who would, would, would step forward. So often what would happen when God would work, and he does the same today, when God is beginning to prepare a people and to lead them, he, he raises up leaders. And so in his heart, as he's looking at the situation, he's saying, God, would you raise up a leader and leaders who would once again hear your voice, and would you once again bring us to this place where your presence is seen and felt and known, where you are present with us. And he cries it out and he goes, why? Why have you broken this wall? Why have you let it, this happen? And there could be many reasons, but obviously some of it is a result of their own sin. And so now for the final assessment, he says, your vine is cut down. It's burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. The son of man whom you've raised up for yourself. Again, calling out for this Messiah or this leader who would lead them like in the judges, like David, like kings who would step forward, who Jehoshaphat, Josiah, those who are good, who would lead the nation. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Basically, God, intervene again. God, look at the condition of your people. See how far we fall. Take note of our circumstances. And then one last time, the chorus. Restore us, 
O Lord, he adds, God Almighty, would you smile on us again that we may be saved? So what do we learn? These three observations. When I, when I walked through that psalm, and I know we went through it real quickly, but when you see the tenor of that psalm, and you hear the cry of the heart of the writer who looks at his people and looks at his own situation and looks at those who are close to him, and he says, God, would you intervene? It's just clear that one of the things the psalmist does is calls on God to intervene, to act. It was very clear to the writer of Psalms at this point, with this large nation of Syria coming, um, overshadowing them, coming to probably destroy them, that it wasn't going to be by their human ingenuity. It wasn't going to be by some new strategy they came up with, some new initiative, some new military invention. It wasn't going to be by anything that they could do that would save them. It took, if you read it again and again, what's his cry? He says, God, what? Restore us. Intervene. And it's real clear, the very first thing that's obvious here is that they needed a miracle. Just like they were back in Egypt, they needed a miracle of God to release them. Just in the days of Saul and David, they needed a miracle of God to free them from the Philistine bondage. They needed God to act. And so the cry is, intervene. The writer Eugene Peterson tells of a time when he was in his backyard and he was mowing and he got done and he could, you know, if you... Uh, remember those days when you mowed some of you? Um, I say that because I have a lawn service too. Anyway, um, and you and you would notice that the the mower wasn't cutting all the grass and it was leaving. So you knew you needed to change the blade; it needed to be sharpened. And so he he was mowing his little plot of ground and he realized at the end of it it needed to be sharpened. He, he got the gas out, turned it over, had it flipped over. He's working on this mower to get the blade off, and he, he gets the biggest wrench he could that would fit this right, and he, he pulled on it, and it, it wouldn't budge, and he pulled and pulled, and you know how you do that, and you, you snap it off, and you, you, know, and you hurt your finger. And so that he thought, with some ingenuity, I, I got a plan, I can make this work. He went, he got the, the, uh, the wrench, and he got a four-foot pipe, right? Remember physics, you know, a little torque? Got that, put his foot on there, and he was pulling with everything that he could. He couldn't make it happen. So then he thought, you know, maybe if I get this set right, and he gets this big rock, and he starts trying to, you know, it's not budging. He said, about the time I was getting pretty emotional with this little lawnmower of mine, my neighbor had been watching. He came over, and he said, you know, Gene, um, I, I once, I think I once, and he was real, you know, nice about it, and I think I once had a mower like that. And as I remember, the threads go the opposite direction. And so Gene thought, well, you know, I have nothing to lose here, except for I'll look like a fool, but, you know, it's okay to be humble if you're doing the right thing. And so he took that wrench and he turned it the other way and he said, I didn't even have to turn it that hard. He said, I probably had to turn it harder than I normally would have because I had gotten that thing so tight from the other direction. But he said, I finally got that thing going. 
And he made the point, the simple point that I think the psalmist is talking about. I think that's true in our own life at times. If we're honest about it, we can go so hard and push so hard in our own direction, in our own way. And, and, and sometimes it's not out of just stubbornness and pride. Sometimes it's just a matter of it just seems like it's the way to go. And you keep pushing, you keep moving in that direction. And finally you come to a place, if you humble yourself, sometimes God, here's the word grace, is so gracious that he actually sends a neighbor who goes, you know, I think you're doing it wrong. But you have to be open however God comes to you when you're in that place and you're praying to be open to how God through his Holy Spirit might work. It may be right through reading God's word. If you take time and you listen that way, it could be through a message. It could be through a song you hear. It could be through a friend. It could be through an enemy. Sometimes God speaks in ways. But the key thing is this. Are you humble enough to receive it? Do you really want God to intervene? Are you willing to say, you know, I have been going this way so long and I've done it so hard and I'm doing it. And in the process of doing it, I'm getting upset. I'm nicking my fingers. I'm doing the things that are hurting me and not only necessarily hurting me after a while, it hurts other people. Are you willing to allow God to come in some way to intervene? And that's what he's crying out for. There are times when we need and what we need to be done can only be done by God. I believe God's church is in that place again. And I'm not saying we don't have do the best musically with all the different initiatives and we strategize and we are to lead well. None of this, none of this, when you ask for God to intervene, takes your responsibility out of it. None of it. In fact, it calls you to be more responsible by being humble. But there are times when you look out and you see what needs to be done, and you know what? The only one who can do it is who? God. And my prayer as we enter into this relationship together as a leader with leaders and and other leaders who want to hear from God and walk with God is that we would enter with a heart that says, God, you know what? And I'm not saying that all the things we're doing is like this, but in a sense, God, we as a church don't want religion. We don't want to work out of our flesh. We want the power of your Holy Spirit and the leading and guiding like Moses. And we want you to work through us to overcome like David. Give us your heart and intervene. And so the psalmist says, revive us, restore us. There's a second observation. He calls to God to intervene and change their character. And what's really interesting when you read this, you have to be very careful because the psalmist cries out for the good old days. He would love to see their circumstances change, but his consistent cry for God to restore is not primarily about some external rearrangement of the furniture of his life or their lives. It's not about change the Dow Jones, the interest rates, the price of oil, my business, My marriage, my finances, all those things. And I'm not saying those aren't things we pray for. But first, it was about change me. Change me. I'll have people come in in marriage counseling sessions all the time and I'll say, you know what, it's just forget about your marriage right now. And they go, what? Forget about your marriage. All you need to do in this point right now is begin to start looking at you. What do you need to do? What's the kind of person you need to be in order to change yourself? Because if you're willing to allow God to change your character, honest to God, it will force change in everything around you. 
You have to realize the word of God makes it very clear. And that's why he calls us to be conformed to not the circumstances of the world, but to conform to the character of Christ, because the character of Christ, what's in here. And if God gets a hold of that, it will change that out there. And so his cry is not first restore us to the way things were circumstances, but it was restore us to the way we were character that our hearts might be like Moses who was meek more than any man, like David, who had a heart cry for God more than anything else in the world, so that, God, you would enter into me and change me. And in changing me, you will change things around me. And if not, you will give me the grace to grow in my character, to be patient, and to develop long-suffering, and to begin to understand the goodness and the grace that I can give out, because what you do in here will begin to affect that out there. The literal translation, restore, in your word, in the Bible here, is turn us again, is what he says. He talks about circumstances and all other things, but he says turn us again. And the last thing I'm going to share with you, this third observation, is he calls on God to intervene to change their character because of his love and because of his commitment to them. This is the most comforting news of all of this. No matter how far you are from God today, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter whether you feel like you deserve it or not, the word of God throughout it and, in, and everywhere in it is it's not about you. It's about him. It's not about even what's in you. It's about what's in him. Grace, God's goodness, and his commitment. One of the greatest things in the world is God is far more committed to you and to your growth and to your becoming all that he wants you to be than you are. And he'll even let you go through difficult times to change your character. One of the things I didn't mention about this in the part of the character, one of the things that's so difficult about character is character is formed. The hardest thing, like, as, an, as a person in business, when I would talk with other people, and we would talk about employees, you know, you always want to hire the right employees, and you always want employees with character, right? Because character is something that's formed when a person is young. It's one of the hardest things to form. It is like cement that you pour in when a person is young. It hardens. But here's the great grace of God. He is so committed to you. He is so committed to you to becoming like the character of Christ. He is so compassionately involved that when you cry out for intervention, and even if he allows for the time to continue, like he says, why, God, why don't you intervene right away? And God allows it to go is because he's willing to allow the heat and the the hard times of suffering to crack that old molded cement character patterns of living, the ways that have been formed in us when we were young strategies that we learned in order to break that up to set new character so that he can do the work through us. And so he calls upon God in these three refrains. He says, restore us, O God. And this is the great thing. As you seek God, you press into God. You'll begin to see, as you begin to press into God, you begin to see that your understanding of God changes. He says, restore us, O God, the first refrain. The second refrain, he begins to see God a little more clearly as he's beginning to press into and restore us, O God Almighty, which means Lord of the hosts of the armies of heaven. You have it all. You can do it. I believe you can do it. And then he says, restore us, O Lord. The word Yahweh, the one they wouldn't even pronounce. It was a word given to, to Moses, which is a word of, of, of name of relationship that said, I am with you forever, Moses. I'm, I'm with you. I'm committed to you. So as he prayed, he began to see God, then the God of this power, and then he began to see the God of this incredible passion. And he said, guess what, God? 
I'm going to trust you through this whole process. Now, I met with a group, and anybody wants to, I encourage you to come. I'm a real believer in prayer. I really believe the things that happens in this world happen because people's heart begin to pray. And there's a group that meets about 820, and they pray for God to do the things he wants to do in this service and in the service to come. But we were praying, and I, they said, how are you doing? And I, I'm pretty much who I am, so I, I told them that I didn't get in till 1.30 last night. Um, I was just out partying. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. I should have been. No, anyway. I was at the hospital. I got a call about nine. My daughter, my oldest daughter, um, had been taken by the ambulance to the emergency room at Methodist. And I'm sitting with this prayer group, and they asked me how I'm doing. I said, well, I'll tell you guys, and I shared with them. And they said, you really need to share it with the congregation. And I said, you know, I don't want, there's all kinds of people that got stuff. And, and, and I just tried to listen to the Spirit of God, and I felt like I'm supposed to share. And my daughter, we went horseback riding yesterday. She got thrown from her horse, and it wasn't a, a major fall, but she tumbled off it and ended up um, kind of rupturing her spleen. So she had internal bleeding. And it was really dangerous at a certain point. Her blood pressure dropped. She got white. And it was one of those real scary things. That's a dad. We were praying for God to revive, to restore, to stabilize, to intervene. And God did. And, he, and she's doing well. She's had to be transferred from um, Methodist to North because they have a better trauma unit there. And they really want to keep a watch on her. And she's doing really well. Both her and, and my wife need rest. So you can pray for that. I bring this up for this. Because if you can tap into that, I know there are people here who are experiencing things. It may be illness. It may be a business. It may be a relationship. It may be something in a marriage. I don't know. But I want you to pray with me. And I'm going to do something, and if you don't feel like doing it, and you, and you want to stand, but you, you just don't want to stand because you're just not one of those kind of people who like to do that, that's fine. But if you are in a place where you would like just prayer for a moment here before you go into communion, I'm going to ask, um, if there's someone in your heart or something you're asking God to intervene for you, would you just take a moment here to stand? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And, and so, again, I don't want this to feel weird or anything like this. I don't know what the church's tradition is. But I do really believe that God works through prayer. And so if you would like prayer, I'm just going to ask you to stand for a moment. And you're saying, God, I need you to intervene in this. It may be for someone or someone else. And then I'm going to ask you as you're standing, um, I'm going to ask the others of you to go ahead. And, um, and you know, I, don't want, I want people to be very respectful of others. Um, but I do want you to look I want you to stand as well now, everyone. And we're going to pray. And there may be someone next to you who has been standing and you don't know anything about them. You don't need to ask them anything right now, but you just by what God has placed in your heart. He may, through his Holy Spirit, give you something to pray for specifically. But I'm going to ask you to listen for a second and then pray out in your heart for the person that you saw around you or for your own situation. Father, we just want to hear you for a moment. You're a living God who converses with us. Father, you know my situation. You know the situations of each person here. And God, we're asking you to intervene. In some situations, we're asking you to intervene right now.
And in some situations, you may be calling character out of us. And God, we want to be more like Jesus every day. And in a moment, we're going to take communion. And communion is all about how much you love us, that you would enter this world and you would become a person and you would die to save us. It's all about a meal that we didn't do anything to prepare, but you made for us. And it's all about us taking that actual bread and that, that, that cup and the, the juice and, and taking it into our system and saying, God, this is what we want. We want you to live in us in this way. Hear these prayers we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.